City Road podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people. Hello, my name is Turan Alzadeh. I'm an Associate Professor of Urbanism and Infrastructure and the Project Lead on Infrastructure Governance Incubator. Hi, my name is Dr. Rebecca Clements. I'm the Postdoctoral Research Fellow on the Infrastructure Governance uh, Incubator Project at the University of Sydney. So hello, I'm Roberta Ryan. I was appointed to the role of the Independent Community Commissioner for the Western Sydney Aerotropolis by the New South Wales Government in May uh, 2021. Uh, to assist and guide small landowners uh, impacted by the rezoning of the area. Um, In August 2021, um, I provided a report uh, to the New South Wales Government called A Fair and Equitable Way Forward. Um, It comprised 40 recommendations, which the Government accepted in full, um, noting that a number were subject to funding. Um, My role's now been extended to work uh, with the community in the Aerotropolis and also the community uh, in Orchard Hills uh, to guide them through the current rezoning process. Hello, Dallas Rogers here and welcome back to City Road Podcast and this special podcast series on infrastructure governance. And today, as you just heard, we're hearing from Roberta, Taran and Rebecca. And we'll just jump straight into the conversation here. Rebecca, how do we understand this idea of infrastructure governance and things like transparency? Absolutely, yeah. So often uh, I think those are the kind of ways that we understand accountability when we're talking about like public accountability when we're talking about um, uh, a governance context. Uh, I think one of the things that came through Um, our research on this topic was realising that there are so many different ways that people talk about it, often without actually unpacking it, just kind of assuming that we're on the same page talking about what accountability means. So indeed, um, you know, we sort of found that there there are really multiple and often intersecting meanings of accountability, particularly when you're talking about such a complex topic as infrastructure governance and planning governance. Um, So some people do see it as referring to the responsibilities and and even um, ideas of subsidiarity. Do the right kinds of people have the right kinds of responsibilities? Some people view accountability also along the lines of responsibility in terms of um, uh, uh, who who is kind of... um, uh, supposed to be delivering certain things and and so it's a kind of a more outcomes focused you know being responsible for delivering uh, specific outcomes or delivering certain aims other people uh, yes see it as as more procedural to do with whether there is adequate transparency public transparency around certain things um, you know the opaqueness or the openness of of governance etc so that there's all and there's all kinds of uh, meanings that that came out of the research that we do, and I, I think understanding accountability means that we um, uh, accept it as actually quite a complex um, notion that we have to kind of pick apart in order to be able to scrutinise it and and um, think about whether we have suitable approaches and, and suitable goals. Jaron, do you have something to add to that? Uh, one thing that uh, is uh, quite clear in our uh, research and in our reading is that there is um, uh, there is a dichotomy 
uh, in accountability um, discussion, which is about fragmented notions of accountability that come at departmental level, at project level, there are check and balances in place versus what is uh, discussed in the literature as a more universal or comprehensive or integrated level of accountability that goes beyond a certain project, a certain department. And this is the one that is more difficult. And uh, the uh, major gaps that we have identified are relevant to this more comprehensive notion of accountability about how to understand it, how about how uh, how to put down normative dimensions and manifestations uh, in complex multi-government collaborative uh, planning projects uh, to go beyond, you know, um, individual projects. Mm. There are a strong conceptual and practical interconnections when it comes to basically three concepts, uh, accountability, social legitimacy, but also transparency. Um, in a sense, impact of poor accountability include not only corruption or poor and inequitable use of resources, but also loss of importance, contextual place knowledge, changes with interagency collaboration integration, and potential project failure. Social legitimacy in infrastructure governance in Australia uh, is often poor or challenging to achieve for a variety of reasons, uh, including lack of transparency, opaque decision-making processes that we have in place, some political uh, legacies, and backflips with government. But it's critical to successful place-making that responses to our major long-term aims of sustainability and equity. A building social legitimacy needs to be taken very seriously, you know, as a central concern in infrastructure governance. And unfortunately, in many cases, it is viewed quite cynically as decision makers trying to achieve a social license for what um, uh, is already determined projects. And this is where accountability and transparency are super important to build trust with public and keep them informed, which is the backbone of true social legitimacy. Roberta, we've heard from a couple of academics there talking about things like transparency and accountability, but you've got experience on the ground, so to speak, trying to make these ideas make sense in a real-life project out in the city. Can you tell me a little bit about how you went about doing that in the Western Parkland city? Yeah, look, I think um, the, the issues of trust and communication are absolutely central. Um, in my role as Independent Community Commissioner for the Aerotropolis, um, I think the role was really necessitated because there'd been a complete failure in the government communicating intent uh, and being able to articulate um, what, it's, what um, was going to happen here. And so by the time I got involved with the community in the Aerotropolis, which is important to separate from what was happening on Bradfield City itself, um, there was a complete lack of trust, uh, a complete failure to uh, bring the community along um, and to you know, understand beyond the really big picture issues around, yeah, they're building a second airport. Um, yep, that's uh, now happening. And here we are with a major rezoning process and a massive investment in infrastructure to enable this. 
but the community were completely hostile uh, to the way the government was undertaking this activity. So what do you think the major hurdles or barriers or challenges were between connecting up residents and government there? Yeah, and I... I mean, it's a bit of a, it's become a bit of a long-standing joke that we now say the government with a capital T-H-E because one of the things that emerged uh, and continues to be the case with uh, people living in the Aerotropolis is that the government is just one thing from their point of view. Um, there was really a significant failure to understand who this community was. Um, there was an, is, there's a, there's an expectation that because for many people the rezoning will lead to significant increase in value of their properties, that this is like, you know, all upside for people, um, that uh, why wouldn't people welcome these changes with open arms? Well, it was a really significant underestimation of who these people are. Um, this community, um, and even early on in my role, I asked the government, uh, you know, who, who, who's here? Who lives here? What do you know about them? Um, and nobody could actually answer that question. So quite some way down the path, um, there was a lack of trying to understand who we were working with here. Um, and, of course, this community, like every community, has its particular dynamics. Um, but for the people who, about 10,000 people uh, at the start of the rezoning process lived in the Aerotropolis, they're largely people who came from, uh, emigrated to Australia in the late 1950s, the post-war, uh, the early uh, 50s uh, through to the 60s. Um, they came from countries, they come on the whole from countries where they don't trust their own governments. They were fleeing hostile governments, um, you know, the former Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia and so on, many people from southern Italy, etc. So they, they are people who, for a start, um, have a fairly... Um, uncertain relationship with government. They're people who lived for uh, 50 years or more uh, on land that no one else wanted. Um, the, this many, Much of the land around at the Aerotropolis is very poor quality land. Um, it floods. Um, you know, it was low value land. That's why people were able to live there. Many of the people who live in the Aerotropolis have never worked in the paid workforce. Um, they have, you know, been market gardeners or uh, through their own enterprise, uh, built small businesses. Um, and those that worked, worked in factories. Many of the people are older. So suddenly we've got the government coming along saying, oh, if you want to know what's happening to you, um, to your uh, particular piece of land, why don't you log on to the planning portal? Well, you know, that is a ridiculous discussion. That's a ridiculous starting point. Um, people who may or may not be computer literate, but certainly couldn't navigate their way around the planning portal. Um, but so there was a complete lack of, from all the agencies really, a real gap in understanding about who this community was. Um, who, what their aspirations are, what their starting point of all of this process was about, um, and tremendous fear. Um, and also that the government, um, because many, this land is not serviced. Um, there's no, there's, there's uh, for most of it, uh, the area around the, the new airport is doesn't have water and sewer. So, you know, if we're dealing with a community in Ashfield, people might have a rough idea that, you know, Sydney Water does this or you pay your rates to council. This is also a community because all, all, almost without exception, there was no services. People have a very um, unclear idea about, never mind, of, you know, ringing up or trying to get help. So that's not our bit. That, that's, you know, so that, that it was a really interesting and, and, and for many people devastating mixture of, 
uh, lack of trust, lack of clarity, poor communication, um, lack of appreciation about what scale of change means. And the theme that I constantly heard was what the uncertainty was doing to people. It was the uncertainty that was creating significant distress in the community. So by the time I was appointed to assist the smaller landowners, I was dealing and continue to deal with people, uh, you know, three years on, who are, are, are confronting significant change. Basically, the whole of the Eritropolis is being converted from uh, residential, rural residential land to industrial land um, in different guises. And um, this is creating extraordinary uncertainty for people. Super interesting. Uh, if landowners or some landowners aren't necessarily interested in rising property values, an interesting idea in itself, what are they interested in? I assume it's things like maintaining their lifestyle and businesses and community. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that desire is rapidly vanishing in front of people's eyes. Um, uh, of course, there's people who um, want to have a rural, uh, you know, a rural lifestyle uh, close to Sydney, uh, close to services, close to Penrith and Campbelltown and so on. Um, but as the um, area is changing, which it certainly is changing rapidly, um, it's almost impossible now for people to continue that lifestyle um, without the amenity impacts of an area undergoing significant change. Um, the other thing, of course, is that um, no matter how much money somebody might get for their plot of land, um, they've got to live somewhere else. So if you wanted to, and this is a, a refrain I hear regularly, if you want to, um, so where do I go? Where, where, do I, where does my family now move to? So it's that... Uh, particularly in the Sydney context of having to move further and further out, um, and even even with that in mind, it's it, it's very difficult for people to replicate the size of the land, you know, the kind of rural outlook um, with the connection to services elsewhere, even with quite a handsome. Uh, you know, uh, amount of money. So it, it, people are like, well, well, where am I going to go? You know, um, uh, so, and of course, for the part of the reason there was such intent and continues to be intensity of feeling um, is for uh, many of these people, this is everything they have. Um, these are not people who are sitting on handsome superannuation balances or have an investment property somewhere. They have worked... Uh, from extremely challenging circumstances, many didn't speak English when they arrived, all of the things that you might um, imagine with, you know, people we sometimes call the brown suitcase migrants. They have worked for 50 years and more to make a better life for their children. So it's not as if we're talking about what they want. It's about having worked the way they have and um, committed to this country in the way that, um, you know, that kind of the, their, this buying into the citizenship of the place. We've got the government coming along and saying, well, this isn't going to be, not going to be rural residential land anymore. It's going to be industrial land. Um, there are winners and losers. Some people have been up zone, some people have been down zone using that, using that kind of language. But this is all about what they're able to give to their children because, of course, many of these people are older. So there's tremendous intensity of feeling around this and it feeds into this 
transparency, how do we get information? We've got, um, you know, real estate agents and some unscrupulous folks going along telling people who've never had any contact with the planning system or government, uh, oh, oh, your land's not worth anything. People trying to rip people off. Um, and then, you know, uh, government turning up and running community information sessions or uh, sitting down in front of an iPad. I mean, just like completely, like there was this complete mismatch in terms of trying to sit down with people, understand what they needed to know and kind of try and piece this thing together for people. So my role has been, half of my role has been working with the individuals trying to understand the circumstances, provide them information in a way they can access it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the other half, which is actually the hardest bit of my role and I think completely unintended, was um, working back into government to try and piece this together on the government side. So um, I'm often dealing with multiple agencies. It's incredibly difficult to find who to speak to. Um, even I can't get some of the information or I get information uh, over the phone or email to me that I can't understand. And I say things like, well, do you think you could just explain to me what that actually means so that I can translate it to somebody else? So, you know, just getting out of government speak, just trying to understand things from a landowner's point of view, um, at times feels like it's beyond some uh, parts of government to just operate in that way. Rebecca, we've heard some challenges there about rolling these projects out on the ground. Uh, how might we do it better? Yeah, so I think Roberta has uh, really shown the, um, the importance of um, recognising aspects like place, community, historical legacies, um, and, and also the actual moment in time that you're uh, attempting this kind of planning. All, all of these things um, sort of need to feed into, um, you know, a, a kind of an accountability approach that is... Um, uh, not imagining that you'll get anything right from the beginning, but something that's actually adapted to those circumstances so that you're sort of looking at your context, you're looking at who your stakeholders and community are and where they're at. Um, so I, ideally, I think, you know, there, there are qu important questions for infrastructure governance here around how we might uh, kind of collaborate to develop accountability approaches that um, are kind of agreed upon by a lot of the key people in, um, you know, uh, around any given uh, question or, or issue um, so that you're kind of setting, you know, from the beginning, you're, you're starting to build a relationship that, that people um, uh, kind of, you know, not necessarily something like um, terms of reference, but in a more general sense, there's a certain agreement to the terms of reference around relationship building. And then, of course, that you continue to sort of build and, and adapt that relationship and those approaches um, uh, around, again, how that develops and how the circumstances develop. I think that's the sort of thing that, um, that we might think about in terms of trying to make infrastructure governance more accessible to people. It's, it's not about like avoiding conflict or contestation, of course, but just actually trying to work with communities and work with the kind of um, big questions and, and uh, real lived experience that these sorts of changes bring about. Taran, we've just heard there that communities are very diverse, different wants and needs. Government is a very diverse entity with lots of differences and nuance inside it. 
how do we do it better with, within the context of all this nuance and difference? It's not an easy question to answer, but um, I can start by saying that we need to tackle government's reluctance to deal openly with challenging topics and welcome public criticism. I mean, I'm saying this in an environment that government is generally reluctant to air dirty laundry. And we need to move beyond relying on three or four year political elections at um, um, checkpoints for accountability. We basically need to have systems to support greater accountability from start to finish. Um, how do we get there? We perhaps can start by thinking about power sharing and think about who are um, uh, invited to the decision-making tables um, and uh, it produce meaningful checkpoints to build trust and legitimacy in the project. In the case of uh, Sydney's Western Parkland city, uh, Roberta has already mentioned the diversity within the community. I think one important element here is that Yes, we are talking about social, economically challenged communities, but there is more than economy here. Uh, here we are talking about um, a part of the metropolitan region that is home to the largest urban indigenous population anywhere in Australia. That may give you ideas, Dallas, in response to your question about, if not about property, what else? Because we are talking about First Nations. And over the last 200 years, we have learned that they don't look at land from a property perspective. So that's one dimension that we need to think about it. And perhaps government hadn't accounted for that properly. But even if I have to give you more tangible um, uh, and more practical steps informed by what we learned in this case, is that um, we have a publicly funded review. In this case, basically, uh, a three-year uh, review was required as part of the Western, um, City, uh, Western Sydney City deal that was signed in 2018. An independent university group, Robert Ryan, happened to be leading it, uh, completed this review in 2021. And this review was never released to the public. Quite a number of the people that we interviewed as part of our project had seen the review or sections of the re review in their professional capacity. While they couldn't talk about the details of the review because it wasn't released, they all talked about its high quality, its uh, basically um, uh, uh, rigor, and um, how useful the uh, uh, suggestions were in that review. Yet, some suggested that it was never released due to the state government discomfort with the findings. Now, we have a still new elected New South Wales government. And this is where we strongly urge the New South Wales government to make the review public, even if it is old. And more importantly, to make a commitment to timely release of all similar documents in future. This will build trust with the community, and this could be a very game-changing decision in the way of building true social legitimacy, show true intention towards accountability, and increase transparency. 
Roberta, I might go to you to wrap us up here and I might throw a similar question to you. Communities are very diverse. Governments are very diverse. These projects are very big and complicated and involve lots of different elements. How do we do this better? Yeah, look, it is, It is. Um, I don't want to um, underestimate the importance of good communication um, and, you know, the um, speaking with people and working with people where they're at um, and doing that in person. I mean, we had COVID through part of this, so even I wasn't able uh, at times to meet people face-to-face, but, you know, we managed. Um, amazing how many people we've shown how to use Zoom. Um, but certainly, you know, face-to-face, actually addressing individuals' issues and then rolling those issues up because if it, I hear about it from one person, I hear about it from three people, and then there's like there's obviously a systemic or structural issue that we then work back into the system to try and resolve. And um, my report talks about half a dozen of those that um, I think we've made some good progress on addressing. But in terms of that, how do you strengthen uh, accountability and trust? The message that um, was repeatedly that's really clear from that community and other communities that I've worked with is it's the uncertainty that drives people mad. So what you need to be able to do, and it is not beyond us, and it, it should have been done in this case and it needs to be done in future cases, it's a very practical thing, is develop a plan that says the electricity infrastructure is going in this precinct during this period. Water is going to be put in in this period, in this in this precinct because apart from the fact of the really basic things like the roads and people's property gets dug up four times because we can't coordinate uh, the putting in this kind of infrastructure in which of course we can coordinate it's just not done but if we had a plan everyone has what they're going to do on their forward um, investment strategies all of the agencies and yes there's a lot of agencies but it's still not beyond us to do it because it's it's minimising uncertainty, that's the name of the game here, by saying, okay, we will have water and sewer to parts of the Aerotropolis before the airport opens. You'd be surprised to know that because we need it. So how about we are able to produce a plan that says this is what's going to happen when and this is how it's going to affect this place, this place, this place and this place. People can manage if they know that the pipeline is coming along their road in six months' time. But then what they can't manage is the lack of coordination and the lack of um, certainty. So there's very practical, basic things that people need, um, and it's coordinating across all three levels of government. Um, the, the significant um, um, failure, in my opinion, um, with respect to the planning of the infrastructure rollout uh, for the Aerotropolis was that we didn't have a um, uh, a whole of government approach where we said not only is this going to be delivered at this time so that people could kind of accommodate this in their own planning um, and of course people want to wait often to sell their properties once they're serviced so you know it helps people's decision making the point of the rezoning is to enable people to move on and convert this land to important employment uses so that we address some of that structural inequality between East and Western Sydney with respect to high quality jobs. So we want people to know, okay, this will be a good time for you to go because at this point we'll have done X and Y in the infrastructure. But what didn't happen 
was that uh, the New South Wales government rezoned an awful lot of land, uh, but didn't have uh, that the relevant agencies didn't have in their forward budgets the servicing for this. And it's still not clear when some of this is going to be able to be funded um, and uh, over what time period. So I can say, sit here and say it'd be great to have a plan, but what you need before you have a plan is that you've got to have forward budget commitments that have got to be place-based that Treasury signs off on because otherwise there isn't going to be the money to service the land that's been resigned for this purpose. So this is really, I think, from my point of view, the key thing for any significant uh, infrastructure. We need to be able to, uh, if we think about release for housing and housing being an important element of infrastructure, if we can't coordinate the budget bit that says all the infrastructure we need, including, including the housing, the community centres, the broadest definition of infrastructure we can find. If the government, and I, you know, I'm using the word the government myself now, if the government, um, mostly Treasury, but sometimes it involves all three levels of government, can't sign off um, on the budget requirements for the forward infrastructure, there's little point in doing the rezoning because it's not going to be converted to the uses that the rezoning is determining if the infrastructure is not funded. And if it's not funded, we can't provide the transparency and we can't provide the communities with the relevant certainty as to what's going to happen when. So they can make decisions, um, but also, you know, schools infrastructure know when it's the right time to come in and build the new school. Thanks, everyone, for what's been a fabulous conversation and part of this podcast series that is coming out of the Infrastructure Governance Incubator. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Dallas. Thank you.